0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: This is Rebecca Buchanan, and I am here today with Adam Abraham, the author of Attack of the Monster Musical, A Cultural History of Little Shop of Horrors. Adam, thanks for talking with me for New Books in Popular Culture. Thanks for having me. Could you start by saying how this book came about? Why did you want to write about this history of Little Shop of Horrors? for me
2: it began with howard ashman he's the author the lyricist and director of little shop of horrors and i've always loved ashman's work and have just been a fan for the longest time as you may know after little shop he went on to work for the disney company and helped create the little mermaid being the beast and aladdin so all of these films really loomed for me for a long time i want to learn more about him his process and how he did what he did. In New York City, I met his sister and his partner, who've been very encouraging, and they developed the idea of writing a book about Little Shop of Horrors, which is really Ashton's signature work. I picked the idea to the sister and the partner, and they said yes, and I began this process and took about four years of research and interviews.
1: And so can you give for for people who don't know Little Shop of Horrors before we sort of go into this discussion, can you give us a little bit of um, just a synopsis about um, and maybe this would help with introducing um how he even came to write this musical. So can you give us a little sort of intro into Little Shop of Horrors? One of the reasons I wrote
2: this book is that the story behind the story is as good as the story itself. So I wouldn't necessarily pitch you the plot of Little Shop. I would pitch you how did this thing happen? And the story goes, Roger Corman was an independent filmmaker in Los Angeles known for making films fast and cheap. He could make a feature film in five or six days, black and white. Make a profit. This is the 1950s. And he said, I want to see if I can beat my own record. Can I make an entire feature length movie in just two days? Can I do it? How would I do it? And he concocted the story about a little shop and mad eating plant and proceeded to try to beat his own record for speed, so he claimed. In reality, it took a bit more like four or five days, but that was still the genesis of a black and white. 1960 film called The Little Shop of Horrors. It was meant to play in the local cinema and vanish forever. Then comes television, and all these kinds of weird pieces of 1950s cinema are floating on your local channel. And a young teenager Howard Ashman saw this movie, The Little Shop of Horrors, in the mid-1960s, somewhere around 1964. So four years after the film came and went, Ashman saw this movie, fell in love with it, and thought, one day I will do something with this. Cut to some years later, he's a director working in theater in New York City. He remembers The Little Shop and thinks, this would be a great idea for a stage musical. So that's the kind of weird genesis, the idea of taking a very cheap, low-budget movie made for under $30,000, meant to last about five minutes, somehow has this incredible afterlife, in part because one person saw it on a black-and-white TV screen, remembered it, and reimagined it in the stage musical that opened in 1982 that many people have since enjoyed
1: so can you, and, and like you said, you this isn't only the story of Little Shop of Horrors, right? It's the story of Howard Ashman and who he was and, and kind of the theater and what he created. So can you sort of give us a little bit of his background, kind of what brought him to this point where he was like, all right, I'm going to like figure out how to make a giant Puppet, um, <laughs> a giant, you know, man-eating plant puppet on the on the stage. <laughs>
2: well, on the title page, I called it a cultural history, but it's also a social history, and that is the story of the people who worked on it. And most importantly, as you've indicated, is Howard. Ashman. So he grew up loving musical theater. He claimed to write his first musical when he was 10 or 11 years old, based on the Reader's Digest version of To Kill a Mockingbird. He hadn't even read the original. And he also loved horror films, so that connects to where the story is going. He moved to New York City, like many others, to work in the theater and managed to get his hands on a very small off-Broadway Off, off Broadway theater company called the WPA, and he became the co-artistic director with his partner at the time, Stuart White. And the goal there was to just do original shows, classic shows, revivals, things that need a second hearing, and they began putting on pieces in this downtown theater in 1977. Now, along the way, Ashton was developing his own writing talents, along with writing this, I mean, rather, leading this theater company and he'd written two a couple of musicals two were off off off-broadway shows written with alan menken the composer and both of these were to some extent not successful they didn't quite click with the larger commercial audience some good reviews some plaudits but neither one was what you'd call a hit so ashton was trying to think how can i write something that would fulfill my own artistic ambition, but also have a commercial life. That's when his mind went back to Little Shop of Horrors, the film by Roger Corman. This was around 1980. So the theater company where he worked, the WPA, reached out to Corman and said, hey, can we get the rights to this film that you made some 20 years ago? Nine days later, Corman wrote back to say yes. So we think that in our day and age, things happen quickly. Back then, things also happened rather quickly. Um, So Until that moment, Howard had this education where he worked in the theater. He studied theater in college, then in graduate school at Indiana University. He did a master's in directing. He put his time in the off-off-Broadway scene, written plays, directed, done some acting. He basically developed this wide range of skills in addition to his own passion and love of musicals and horror films. So to some extent, all this training, all this passion coalesced in the project that became Little Shop of Horrors when it opened in
1: 1982. And and so, as you you talk about, right, in this, how this sort of came to be, and, and there were a number of things that, for me, that were really interesting, right? Like, the working relationship between Ashman and Mencken was really kind of fascinating. And you talk about that. But also... Um, needing to figure out how like how to make this plant work right and how to make this plant alive so could you talk a little bit um, about kind of you know or highlight some of the things of where you saw um, this work to just kind of the, the boots on the ground work to make this a viable thing to make this something that could be on stage. Well, let's start with
2: the plant, since you mentioned, as many people know, Little Shop of Horrors is about a man eating plant from outer space. It seduces the attentions of a young clerk named Seymour. Promises him all sorts of wonderful things in his life if only Seymour will come and deliver human blood. So it's a kind of Faustian bargain that Seymour makes with this plant. Now, the plant is not an incidental sidebar to this musical. It was very much at the center of Ashman's conception because, as, he, as I said, he had two, a couple of lackluster experiences in the off off Broadway world, which shows they get a pleasant review and are gone in 30 days. He said, I'm going to make a musical that will have, have, have a great big gimmick right in the middle of it, a gimmick so large, so obvious that even the most blurry-eyed critic will see it and notice it and pay attention. So that's when he remembered Little Shop. He thought if we could have a musical built around this singing and dancing plant that's going to be funky and soulful, it would be successful. And at this point, Ashton was very influenced by the, Muppets, the Muppet Show began syndication in 1977 and was around 76, 77, and was a huge cultural phenomenon. Building on the success of Sesame Street, Henson did this primetime series, The Muppet Show, which introduced many beloved characters, including Miss Piggy, who really became a sensation at the time. She was on magazine covers. So Ashman saw this Miss Piggy and thought, what if we make a plant that's as wild and volatile and commanding as Miss Piggy, and we put her right in the middle of this play? People are going to notice. People are going to say, you've got to see this thing. It's unbelievable. It's wacky. So the plant is not an incidental problem to be solved. It was very much at the heart of the conception and almost why he chose this particular story, why he wanted to adapt this. He saw it as a vehicle that could use puppetry use his songwriting talents and embrace his love of musical theater the traditional musical as designed by rogers and hammerstein but also the horror film is mastered by roger corman and many others
1: so it's like so they figure out the plant right they work on that and like you said also thinking about Who is going to play these roles? They did not have like if people are not familiar and not have not seen the musical and have seen the film and the musical only had, was it eight people? Eight plus puppeteer. Yes. Right. And so thinking about who these characters are and bringing in the people who they really wanted to work with. Can you talk a little bit about that and setting and how they kind of came to get the cast together who they wanted?
2: Again, I would say there's a creative story, but there's also a professional story of how Ashman conceived of this piece. The previous musical he wrote with Alan Menken was called God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. This was based in a novel by Kurt Vonnegut from the mid-1960s. The show played at the little theater that Ashman ran and then moved to a proper off-Broadway house for an open-ended run. And there it essentially flopped and didn't run more than about two months. One of the reasons it was not successful in this larger venue was the cast size. Rosewater had a cast of 14, which is expensive. When you're in a tiny theater and your numbers are small, paying that many salaries per week can be prohibitive and can be the difference between success and failure, especially in the early weeks of a run when something's finding its audience. So Howard thought, the next thing I do is going to be designed to run, and he was going to limit the cast to six or seven or eight. One of the inspirations was also an earlier small off-off-Broadway, then-off-Broadway show. That was one called Dames at Sea, which was kind of a throwback to the old 1930s Busby Berkeley musicals. This was a hit show in the 1960s, best known, I think, for launching the career of Bernadette Peters and ashman saw the show enjoyed it and he in fact appeared in dames at sea when he was a grad student at indiana university so dames at sea had a cast of six three men three women so this model was very much in his mind and when he was developing the show he was trying to make it work with a cast of three and three just like dames at sea it wound up being more like eight plus a puppeteer so it was very much conceived with the idea of a smallness that will make it more affordable more cost effective to run in an open-ended off-broadway house so there's again this business model behind it in terms of the casting you know it's kind of the typical process it's an equity showcase therefore they're obliged to have an open call so anyone and everyone can walk in and give his or her best shot beyond that they would have scheduled appointments and it seems they just found the best people they could. It wasn't really written with someone in mind, although Ashton claimed that he had Ellen Green in mind when he was writing the role of Audrey, but it certainly wasn't offered to her. She came and auditioned and had to prove her mettle like anyone else. So it was very much developed with the idea, how can we make a small cast for a show that can run? Then let's find the best people that we can find. And The Puppeteer was always a separate track.
1: And you and throughout you kind of talk about right how that happened, um, but it is not without you know some struggles in there, so people who are really interested in the cast and how the cast got along, and also how they um sort of compiled and put together this piece and how he worked as a director um that's sort of all in there as well um and then you kind of get to the point where this musical goes on, performs, right, and becomes a big hit. And so could you talk a little bit about what you were seeing? Why did this work so well? Like, what are the elements that made this work as well as it did?
2: Low expectations play a part. I mean, the WPA theater, where it originally played, is not a Broadway house. It's not even an off-Broadway house. It was essentially a loft on Lower Fifth Avenue at the time, a kind of dingy neighborhood that was converted into a black box theater. It was run as not-for-profit. They were producing shows for a couple thousand dollars. You know, this is very modest. They're getting equity actors because equity has a waiver where they allow their performers to appear in an off-off Broadway show for a limited time. So anyone venturing to Lower Fifth Avenue in the early 80s would not be expecting much, I would think, you know, and if you happen to know the reputation of the film by roger corman called the little shop of horrors you might recall it was kind of a terrible movie that was notoriously made as a joke on a bet in a two-day period plus a little wiggle room so to some extent that was part of the phenomenon you go little, your friend says oh you have to see this thing you go in you're thinking oh my god this is gonna be the worst two hours of my life And then lo and behold, this thing captivates you from the opening seconds with a wonderful score, amazing performance, very tight writing, and it just takes you on this journey. So you're getting so much more than I think you expect in that kind of off-off Broadway house. It's also unpretentious, you know, in those kinds of venues, you might expect more artsy, more pretentious, more self-indulgent. Little Shop is not that. It's well-crafted. In a way, it is a commercial piece. It's meant to entertain, engage. It's meant to make you laugh and cry. So it is, in a way, commercial art, although it's produced under these non-commercial, not-for-profit settings. So yeah, I think it's that element of surprise. Now it's hard to remember because now you've probably heard of Little Shop of Horrors. It became a Warner Brothers film. It became a Broadway revival. It's back in New York now and a successful off-Broadway revival. It's done by high schools all around the country. So it became this thing where we know about it and has a kind of name recognition. So it's hard to recreate and imagine what it would have been like for those very first audiences in 1982 to see something, think, oh my God, what just happened to me?
1: Well, and, and it... They made to So it starts to get popular. And one thing you talk about is some of the strategic decisions that they made about putting it on where it needs to take place and, and sort of and what that looks like. And so can you talk about some in some of the ways that he wanted to ensure that it continued to be successful? Some of those things that he did to um, make sure that this does not become like does not fit into the theater and into the spaces where it was going to be performed
2: well at the wpa the theater that he ran with stuart wright the show was always going to run for four weeks that's the arrangement with equity you get four weeks on and off and you're done if you want to have any life beyond that then you need to enter into a commercial agreement that could be broadway or that could be off broadway they're your two main choices and the WPA Theatre had a number of successes previous to Little Shop. A number of the shows did go to Broadway or off-Broadway. One was Nuts, which later became a feature film. They had a couple of other modest hits. So that's kind of the fork in the road. Where does it go? And Ashton was the one who was most insistent, saying, this belongs downtown. This belongs off-Broadway. If we put this in a Broadway theater, even one of the smaller, more intimate Broadway theaters, it's suddenly going to lose its essence, because now you're in this gorgeous playhouse built in the 1920s with boxes and gold and curtains, and it's no longer going to be the little shop experience that people loved in its first incarnation. So they happened upon a place called the Orpheum Theater on 2nd Avenue in East Village, which at the time was really a derelict space. And they retrofitted it a little bit, but they thought this is a place where little shop could live and breathe. And the neighborhood at the time was considered a kind of Skid Row, which is appropriate because that is the second musical number in the show, Skid Row downtown. So in a way there was a perfect merging of location, the physical theater and the piece that was playing. So it all felt like one, it felt like a whole. And that was one of the reasons I think it wound up running for five years plus, because it was such a perfect place. For that. Again, you're going a little bit out of your way. It's not the theater district of Midtown Manhattan. You have to venture down to Second Avenue. You have to leave your comfort zone. You have to go see where there's all sorts of other cultural attractions that are not necessarily those of Times Square. And again, have your mind blown by this out of the way off Broadway piece. So that was very much essential for Ashman. And once the show was successful and was making money, One of the co-producers was the Schubert organization, and they naturally wanted to move the theater to the rather the show to one of their theaters. I mean, the Schubert's own 16 or 17 theaters. So like, take the booth, take this theater. We have all these great theaters. Make more money because the ticket sales would go up. The number of seats that you could sell would go up and everybody would make more money. So Ashton, to his credit, resisted that offer even though he himself would have benefited and Mencken would have benefited because he thought, no, that's not right for the show. And by keeping it downtown, I think he wound up having a longer run because maybe it moves to Broadway. Then six months later, it's gone. You know, you never know. That is a guess we can make. Eventually, Little Shop did open on Broadway after Ashman died. This happened in 2003 and it was not that well received. It didn't seem like the perfect fit. Of the theater and the piece, so when it was revived again in 2019, the family decided we're going to do what Ashton originally wanted. We're going to put this in Off Broadway House. That's where it belongs.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail—from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: And, you know, it was interesting, too, that when you're talking about this original run, like the original runs, some of them happened at midnight, right? They were late at night. It was a much more... Um, gritty, I don't know if that's the word, but but right, like, um, production, uh, you, one thing I thought was really interesting, and you have in the back of the book is um, sort of the changes in songs, some of the changes that were made, not only pre-production, but like, as they were sort of in reincarnations of the, te- of the musical. Um, and so I thought that that was that sort of thinking about what even the time to run, right, we're going to run something at midnight, we're going to do these different shows was really interesting to think about. I mean, yeah,
2: when it originally played at that first off-off Broadway house, there were, I think, three midnight performances on Saturday. And this is atypical for theater, because you're living people and you have to stay up late at night to put on a show. But it obviously connects to the idea of a cult movie and a midnight movie. And this very much connects to Roger Corman, to things like Rocky Horror, which became the Rocky Horror Picture Show, the ultimate midnight movie. So it's not incidental that they made these choices. from, from what I can tell, these three performances were absolutely mesmerizing. Also, also note that in this WPA theater, there was no air conditioning. So it's June, it's summer, it's hot. You're In this building at midnight, you're sweating. Apparently, people are taking off their tops and unbuttoning and so forth. So there was kind of this homosexual carnivalesque air going on. And that just helps the performance. You know, it's not a matinee in a Broadway house at 2 p.m. on a Wednesday. This is midnight downtown in some gritty part of the city. And people are taking the clothes off in the audience. So, I mean, if you had a time machine, that would have to be one of your destinations. Choose one of those three midnight performances to see Little shop, and according to some, according to some of the performers, they felt like it was in those midnight performances that the show really found its voice, and they really found their swagger.
1: So, so they've got this hit. The show is going, and so they decide to, um, as you say, conquer the world. Right? I think in your one of your chapters. So, so right. So they they move outside of their New York theater. So could you talk a little bit about then what happens when they go to London, then they go to the West Coast, um, and, you know, what happens next?
2: Each theater has different requirements, but the main change is that it is now a business. It is now the little shop company. It is a for-profit entity. It's still a work of art that has artistic merit, but now they're trying to make money in different places. Off-Broadway at the Orpheum Theater is one of those places. They're thinking, where do we go next? It chose Los Angeles in part because David Geffen was one of the producers of the off-Broadway transfer. He wanted to be in his part of the world and made a push for LA. So, you know, theater in LA, especially this time, was not necessarily a successful endeavor. It was still a movie town. They managed to run six, seven months in Los Angeles in Westwood, California, which is pretty successful. They kept some of the original stars of the show so this is kind of the first satellite the first time the show is leaving new york It's going to la so they're thinking this is our brand how can we protect it and how can we project the best version of the little shop so i think four of the performers from the new york production opened the la production with some newcomers from la and the reviews in los angeles are really terrific so that was the testing ground and it showed that this thing could work not just in manhattan and even lower manhattan at that because you know la also had it just kind of is a sprawl. So people are coming from Orange County. They're coming from all different places. It seems to get really, really good reviews and a good response in Los Angeles. So then it went to London. And the theatrical scenario is very different in London. Once again, they had one of their fellow producers who could help lead the charge. In this case, Cameron McIntosh was one of the producers, again, of this off-Broadway incarnation. He took charge of London production. But as he explained to me, in London, there really is not anything like off broadway there's the west end and that's it they don't kind of have those dingy second-tier theaters some theaters are larger or smaller but they're all kind of beautiful so I wound up going in a more classical playhouse of comedy and Macintosh felt the show had to be designed up a bit to fit this new space the theater, the seating capacity is maybe twice what it was in downtown new york so there's some changes happened there but again it was pretty well received um, sometimes the English critics didn't always get it or had a sort of bias against this American upstart. But Ellen Green also traveled to London and was rapturously received by the press there. So now they've done it in three places and it's pretty much worked. London played for about two years, which is pretty successful for an offbeat show that's not, you know, doesn't have the name recognition of some of the titles you might hear about. So the next is the national tour. This is the first time it was probably actually misproduced because when they did the national tour playing all around the country, they just could not find the small intimate venues that were right. Now it's playing in theaters with 2000 seats. Now it's playing in gigantic theaters with gargoyles, and the show written for this intimate space, a 98 seat theater in its first incarnation is suddenly getting lost in these gigantic auditoriums. So if from what I can tell, it was not as successful. The other phenomenon that happened at this point in 1984 is that Cats was also roaming the land. And the musical Cats by Andrew Lloyd Webber launched its national tour around the same time. And it seems audiences all around the country were crazy about cats. They loved cats and couldn't get enough of cats. Then they see Little Shop and like, eh. So somehow it... It seemed weak in comparison to Cats, although you could say each show has its merits. So that was the first time it didn't seem to click in quite the same way. But it also launched all around the world and seemed, from what I could tell, to be pretty well received and get good reviews. Uh, I mean, from South Africa to Norway, Japan as well so by this point i should note ashman was less involved he pretty much handed the reins over to his assistant director to the stage manager others started to carry the baton from that point forward but there was always consistency it was always little shop it was always ashman's vision the show to some extent didn't change what changed was the producing venue the setting the size the scale some of the legal parameters of production But to some extent, anyone who saw the show in the 80s would have seen Ashman's vision of the show. I think they were always true to that.
1: And so we have the show, it becomes successful. And so like all successful, (laughs) often successful musicals, especially end up on the TV and the big screen, right? And so you talk about that um, positioning it, thinking about it on the big screen. So can you talk a little bit about how that, how audrey and everyone else came to be on the big screen (laughs) well for many
2: audiences for many people listening right now when they hear the words little shop of horrors they might be thinking of the 1986 film directed by frank oz released by warner brothers with bill mary steve martin and Ellen green To, to many people that is Little Shop. For me, that's version number three, because Roger Corman came first in 1960, The Little Shop of Horrors. Then 1982 was the Ashton Mencken musical. So The Wonder Brothers film was really the third incarnation of the piece. So in a way, it's a return. It's going back to the screen. It was a film. It's on stage. Now it's going back to the screen, but improved, as it were, by the Ashton Mencken songs, now shot in Technicolor, now with a budget of many, many millions of dollars. So there's a certain irony in the trajectory here because it was this little thing. It began; it was always little, and little is appropriately in the title. It was a little movie by Roger Corman made for $30,000, shot in a couple of days. Then it was a little, little show in downtown Manhattan, 98 seats in this off-the-beaten-path theater where you say to your friend, oh, you have to see this thing. Then the Orpheum, it's still kind of little. So it had this little nest. Now it's a big Hollywood movie. It's made by Warner Brothers. It's produced by David Geffen. It's going to be a summer blockbuster. It winds up being released in Christmas because of delays, but it's meant to be a big movie. It's meant to compete with Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, E.T. the Extra, for well, that kind of thing. So there's a way in which it's a big step up for the production. Ashman remained the writer. He wrote all the drafts, and as many people know, he was obliged to change the ending. And that was one of the unfortunate things in the case of the 1986 film. They shot the original ending of the play in which the plant, that is the villain, wins. All the good people get eaten. Don't feed the plants. Oh, well, we're dead. Um, So they shot it. They put it on film. They have a beautiful multimillion-dollar epic finale with plants crawling over buildings and tearing them down and destroying unnamed cities. And they showed this to a test audience in San Jose, California, and the audience didn't like it. And if it's a film, the audience is the expert. So the studio decided they have to change the ending, give it the requisite happy ending, and Ashman rewrote it. He thought, I might as well give them what they want because if I don't, some hack will come along and mess it up. So in order to protect what he'd written and try to retain some integrity of the piece, he gave them the ending they wanted to, boy gets curled plant gets destroyed all kind of works out and they are happily ever after so that's the kind of condensed version of the movie <laughs>
1: <laughs> but like it was interesting too so in making the movie um, some of the songs were changed right um, characters were added there it, I thought it was really interesting that the, I You talk about because David Geffen was involved, there was also a lot of talk about maybe having musicians um, as as guest slots and just thinking about how Duran Duran, because Duran Duran came up. Like, I was like, how does Duran Duran even figure in any small way into this? Um, So uh, there was some really, I I just, as a Duran Duran person, but I'm just trying to, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. But there's these fascinating things that they had to, like, sort of, you know, they navigated and thought about before getting to what they created.
2: (laughs) Yes. I mean, Ashman, to his credit, was open to somewhat reinventing the piece. Now, as you say, because Geffen was the producer, there seemed to be some idea that we're going to have musical guest stars. And I don't know if they were signed with Geffen Records or just people he knew personally, but okay, now David Bowie could do a bit here and Duran Duran could appear here and different names like that were thrown about. As viewers of the film know, this did not happen, but it was one of the early ideas that they developed. I can't exactly explain what that would look like because technically it takes place in the 1960s. So Duran Duran, you might think of as a 1980s icon, so they would have to effectively look like the 1960s to fit in the world, what characters they would be or play, I can't really determine. But there were different ideas thrown around. But Ashwin also cut seven songs from his own piece. And understand, this was not the studio insisting on it. This is not a bad test screening. He consciously thought this is a different medium. Different needs are required. It's not a stage piece. And he was tough on his own work. Some might say too tough because he removed some songs that people really love. But that was his own instant. Before director was even attached, he'd cut many of the songs. And he was willing to rethink the piece and try to think it in terms of cinema. Instead of the musical guest stars, the film wound up having the comedy guest stars. That wound up being the surrogate. So Christopher Guest, John Candy, Bill Mary, a few others um, wound up being the kind of, ooh, look, it's that person. Um, to fill in, I guess, the conceptual place for the musical guest stars would have been. But yeah, there's a counterfactual Little Shop of Horrors out there in which Duran Duran appears wearing suits of the early 60s and singing back up or something.
1: (laughs) The Duran Duran or the urchins, it's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I can see
2: it. Her Um, name is Audrey and she dances (laughs) on the sand.
1: And... Um, Yeah, so, and and even though it wasn't a huge success, it really has become another cult classic, right? Like, this has become this film. And so you kind of end with talking about... um, the, you know, the afterlives, like how this has sort of continued to create this phenomenon and this love for this piece well after um, Howard Ashman has tragically died um, from AIDS, which we lost many people, especially during that time period from. And so can you talk a little bit about like some of the places you're seeing that this is that that have been impacted and affected by his work in with Little Shop of Horrors? I
2: mean, one of the most remarkable things about Little Shop of Horror is that 40 years later, it just works. I mean, the show is playing off-Broadway, and I went to see it a few times, and there are children who obviously were not born then who are responding to this thing and loving it and enjoying it as if it's new, and there's no consciousness that they're watching something retro or old or something their parents like. It just works, and they did not change a word, and they did not change anything. And just think, how many artworks from 1982 would you look at today and think, hmm, that definitely should stay there, stay in the past, please? So the work itself continues to play in a way that's really remarkable that only a handful of musicals, you know, you can think of My Fair Lady, there's a handful of musicals that just keep working, that have that perfect machinery, where they don't seem to need any touch ups or fixes, thankfully. At the same time, Little Shop and Ashwin's career more widely have launched other phenomena. I mean, for Little Shop in particular, there's obviously revivals and productions all around the world, but there's also parodies and spinoffs. I mean, I discovered this phenomenon of fan adaptations where people who just love this thing take a home movie camera and film themselves lip-syncing songs from Little Shop Horrors because they love it. You know, they're doing it for themselves, for their friends, for laugh. And some of these things appear on YouTube with thousands and thousands and thousands of hits. They're quite successful in their own Form, they're generally responding to the 1986 film by Frank Oz, because that's the way that many people found the piece. I mean, you said that the Little Shop movie was not very successful, that's true, but it did really succeed in cable and home video, that's where more and more people found it. So that is part of the reason that piece has the afterlife. But you could also make the case that Ashman influenced the wider Disney renaissance, where the Disney company kind of remembered how to make a musical film. I earlier mentioned The Little Mermaid being the beast in Aladdin. That leads to Pocahontas, Lion King, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Frozen, all these projects are following through with the insights that Ashman had in terms of how to make an animated musical sing. What kind of songs do we want? Where do they go? How does the music serve the story? And how does the story work with the music? So that's very much part of the afterlife of Ashman's career as well. So there's lots of different ways to look at it. But that was one of the reasons I wanted to write this book to get that last chapter to see all the different manifestations of Little Shop of Horrors and Ashman's career through different media.
1: Yes, I have to say I loved the connection and thinking about john waters right and 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 that relationship even though my um musical theater loving tween daughter (laughs) does not like that connection as much i do but she also doesn't have the history of with john waters that, that i do but yeah i appreciated sort of thinking about those other connections between musical theater and nostalgia as well
2: It's also a question like Baltimore. Baltimore is this interesting American city that's given us some real cultural highlights. John Waters, Howard Ashman, The Wire, H.L. Manchin. What is it about Baltimore? I've asked some people. It just seems like... An unusual place. And I don't know much about the city except what I've researched for this project. So there is a strong connection between John Waters and Howard Ashman, besides their Baltimore connection. Waters was a few years older, but they became friendly. Ashman loved the films of John Waters, watched them on videotape. They wound up having some mutual friends. And when the show first opened in Baltimore in 1984, Waters came to see it and went to the party. So they were friendly then. And there's the connection to Hairspray, you know, which is maybe now the best-known Tom Waters piece, in part because it launched a Broadway musical, which in turn launched another film, which on Travolta. Little Shop and the Hairspray cover similar terrain. They both are 1962, essentially. They're both recreating the musical style of the past. They're both looking at a kind of outsider art. Um, they're both dealing with race relations to some extent. So, you know, it's a somewhat superficial comparison, but both Waters and Ashman were reaching back into their own pasts to discover something about themselves, about American culture in the 1980s, and putting that forth for the public. And both were among their more successful work.
1: So there, there's a clear connection. <laughs> yes. No, I thought it was fascinating like and and i do and i just say like like you do this wonderful job of thinking about this musical but yes also connecting it to kind of a larger history and even for people who have do not have the experience or the the knowledge of Little Shop of Horrors, also thinking about how musical theater kind in in some ways or at least one way musical theater works and how musical theater is create or theater is created, right? So so this is coming out in the beginning of September. So um, I'll ask you my kind of final question: Do you have anything like with the book that you want any kind of last promotion like with this book, a new project you're working on? What? Well, how do you you want to plug yourself in any way, shape, or form? It's a little premature.
2: I'm putting together a few things in September for those who happen to live in New York City. So you can follow me on Instagram if you like, abraham.author. I will post things there. I believe I'm going to do a book signing at Drama Bookshop. I will confirm that soon. I'm trying to do another one. There might be a few others. So yeah, September 8th is the date the book comes out. But you can pre-order it now if you're inclined to do so from Bloomsbury's website or Amazon. I don't think I have any other promotions.
1: Awesome. Well, again, this was Adam Abraham who wrote Attack of the Monster Musical, a cultural history of Little Shop of Horrors. Adam, thanks for talking with me for new books in popular culture.
2: Thank you.